This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. When you think of anarchism, what comes to mind? Who comes to mind? Maybe you have some vague image of a punk rocker with the circle A symbol scratched into her jeans. or some comic book supervillain out to destroy the world that hurt him. What do you believe in? I believe whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you a stranger. Those are fun caricatures. But in reality, anarchism is a rich tradition of thought going back centuries. And it was at the center of utopian leftism until Marxism came along. Today, though, Marxism and other lefty ideologies don't have nearly the purchase they once did. And to me, at least, it's not clear what, if anything, has filled that void. Which is all the more interesting since we are in a moment where so many conventional ways of doing and thinking about politics are being challenged. So, in that spirit, let's ask a serious question. What can we learn from the history of anarchism? I'm Sean Illing, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Sophie Scott Brown. She's a research fellow at the University of St. Andrews and the director of Gresham College in London. She's also a philosopher and the author of the book, Colin Ward and the Art of Everyday Anarchy. Sophie does a lot of her work through intellectual biography, and she's especially interested in anarchism and the history of education. I've wanted to explore anarchist thought for a while, but I never found the right person to walk me through it until I stumbled upon an interview of Sophie talking about anarchy and its relationship to democracy. And so I invited her onto the show to chat about why she's an anarchist. Sophie Scott Brown, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Sean. Anarchy. <laughs> it sounds scary, doesn't it? It's a scary word for people. And I imagine the default image in someone's head is lawless chaos. I mean, even I can't help but think of the Joker and the Dark Knight or something like that. Um, <laughs> so I just want to start by asking you what anarchy means to a serious anarchist. Wow. Okay. Just a small one to get going with. Um, yeah, <laughs> I completely accept the stereotype. It's one that generally, um, before you can get to any sort of serious anarchist philosophy, you tend to have to do quite a lot of work sort of deconstructing that for people. This is sort of how I see it. Let's just get us off to some sort of working definition that might help. Anarchism, if you just take the very word itself, anarchism, all it's actually committing you is to a belief or a commitment to a lack of permanent authority. Mm. Now, what you then want to do imaginatively after that, how much of the kind of propaganda you want to buy into, dare I say, whether that has to be chaos or has to be disorder, has to be crime, has to be violence, that's possibly down to what you've heard or seen or come across in the past. But actually the concept itself simply says no permanent authority. 
And that's about the one thing you can say really connects up a lot of people who might use that term to describe their beliefs. Well, that's a pretty important distinction because to be opposed to permanent leadership is not to be opposed to leadership as such. You're not necessarily opposed to authority or leadership, but you're opposed to fixed permanent authority. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'll speak personally there because obviously the other wonderful thing about anarchism is it's one of those ideologies that gives you almost carte blanche never to agree with your fellow anarchists, right? If you're an anarchist by nature, you're unclubbable. So I will only speak or represent the sort of anarchism that I look into, I work on, and I certainly defend philosophically and politically. I think maybe the pithiest definition I've seen is the famous line from Edward Abbey that Anarchism is democracy taken seriously. I don't know how accurate that is, but I like it. I think that's precisely right. There's a spectrum of anarchisms. Um, so I'll stress that before I get <laughs> lots of complaints. However, I would actually argue, philosophically speaking, if you're going to take again that first notion we started with, that commitment to an absence of permanent authority, logically, that does sort of refine your options a little bit more. And that's why actually many people can see that what anarchism really is, is something like the conceptual breadth of liberalism taken to its fullest extent, to its most logical conclusion. You know, what anarchism is for some people is radical democracy. I mean, as you were just kind of hinting at, every school of thought is a family of overlapping ideas with different strains and, and different camps. Is there a particular species of anarchism that you identify with? I mean, when you show up at an anarchist conference, like which, <laughs> which team are you on? Which hat are you wearing? Must admit, never been to an anarchist conference. I don't think we, <laughs> for people quite obsessed with forms of social organization, um, it doesn't seem to necessarily translate into nice academic conferences, but that's, that's okay. I mean, for me, if you want the sort of philosophical roots of it, it comes very much from the Italian rhetorical tradition. So figures like Cicero going through to Vico, people who actually believe that the nuts and bolts of living together means communication, means dispute, means arguing, essentially, but arguing in such a way where the results are not catastrophic. So conflict, I think, is a feature of life. What the challenge is for us is to not make that conflict catastrophic. So if you sort of accept that conflict's going to be a ubiquitous feature of life, you say to yourself, okay, well, how do we, how do we do that? So it's actually not just that it's not catastrophic, as in results in war or major clash, loss of life, violence, et cetera. So we want it low level, but we also actually want more. We want to be ambitious with it. We want it to be creative. How can we live in a world where our conflicts, our differences, our collisions between one another actually prove to be very creative. And that to me is actually the essence of what a full and most radical democratic kind of culture would look like. It does seem like a, a lot of this comes down to whether or not you, you view human conflict as ultimately creative or ultimately destructive, whether it's the beginning of cooperation or the end of conversation. And it seems the anarchist falls on one side of that pretty aggressively. Well, you have the famous quote, it's usually attributed to Bakunin, to destroy and to build again. Mm. There is a vein running through anarchism, which has often been part of the reason why it's been associated with violence and violent insurrection and chaos and disorder and a sort of cult and an orgy of that, if you will. But to destroy and to build again can be taken perfectly metaphorically. This idea that actually destruction and creation are kind of simultaneous things. Any act of creativity is kind of simultaneously destroying some possibilities in favor of others. I got an education in political theory, and mm -hmm. I'm not sure I ever read at any point in that education a self-identified anarchist thinker. Mm -hmm. If someone had to start their anarchist journey somewhere, where would mm -hmm. you point them? Is there a Plato for anarchist thought? <laughs> you know, who, Who's the most important person to read for your money? Sure. Well, again, this is another one of those um, very vexed questions. I'm just going to first pick up and just have a little digression and a moan about <laughs> our education systems. Go for it. Um, essentially, I, it doesn't surprise me for a moment that you never came across Kropotkin or Bakunin or Proudhon or um, not even Chomsky, not a sniff of Chomsky. I read that on my own, but it was never okay. part of the curriculum. 
Yeah, well, exactly. That that is that is the problem with the world today. Not enough Chomsky on the curriculum. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, it's no great surprise, right? Because we kind of all know that education, whilst it's held up as this great universal good, it's kind of also not. It's a form of socialization. And the reality is we live in societies at the moment that don't have any interest in us thinking favorably of anarchism, understanding some of its more peaceful, pacifistic qualities. So it's never going to be something that you're going to be presented with, although there will be currents coming at you from different directions. But this is anarchism, so it's a bit of a vexed issue. Um, there's always a bit of a tension around having a kind of um, intellectual genealogy or even having intellectuals at all, per se. Um, many anarchists kind of resist that because there's that presumption of authority, which basically means that you've privileged one set of people's experiences. You're elevating it to the sort of status of knowledge and you're using that to therefore impose or insert coercively a particular view onto others. Some people are not that extreme. They recognize um, that intellectuals are giving us gifts, they're giving us ideas, they're giving us inspiration, they're giving us things we can work with. And there is obviously the fact that, you know, whilst there might be many truths in the world, actually something that is true, especially in this day and age, is actually a good start. So all the qualifications and caveats out of the way. I think most people would say that Kropotkin is a fairly sort of astonishing read these days, simply because he seems to have been so prescient about the sort of world and the situation that we find ourselves in. There is a lot of insight into the sort of direction of travel of modernity, as it were, particularly books like Mutual Aid. I think even if you haven't read that, this notion that cooperation's actually been a major factor driving human evolution, not just competition, um, I think that's actually percolated through quite widely and sort of planting that idea of, well, actually so much of anarchism is not about all this sort of violence and aggression and drama and fire and all gory stuff. It's actually about really quite almost borderline boring issues. Like how are you going to get food supplies sorted out? How are you going to sort your statutory services out? All that sort of thing. Real practical planning issues, essentially. It's interesting that you, you put it that way. I in preparing for this conversation, I've been doing a little reading on anarchism, and I'm very intrigued by this idea that it's better to think of anarchism as a practice as opposed to an ideology. Do you think that's helpful? Do you think of it that way? I certainly do. I sort of think in some ways the big challenge anarchism gives to us these days and why it's a way of political thinking which is sort of so removed from where we're at now and yet going to be so essential for the world that we're going into is because actually it comes away from this whole notion that politics always has to have an end game. Like you're going somewhere, you're going to reach an end goal, it's going to be utopia, it's going to be the ideal society, it's going to be the right way to live. And, and there was always an element of utopianism and anarchism, let's not, let's not lie. However, for me, I sort of feel we're reaching times now where people have very little patience, I think, actually now, especially post-Cold War, very little patience with utopian notions beyond very broad brushstrokes. Like, wouldn't it be nice to live in a world without constant warfare? That kind of utopian thinking has a life and a place, but anything more specific, I think we've perhaps grown out of slightly more. Um, and therefore, this idea of anarchy is a habit of mind or an attitude or a way of thinking and being in the world. One that says, if you don't have permanent authority and you have all this conflict you've got to deal with, then actually what you've really got to think about is a politics of constant change. You've got to think of about a politics which accepts that you're never going to have the truth or the facts or, or, or the safe ground under your feet to know you're right. So how do you live with an ability to adapt? How do you live with contingency? How do you live with the fact that you're going to be involved in lots of different kinds of problems, probably simultaneously? More of my conversation with Sophie Scott-Brown after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. 
Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot slash box for 15% off borough.com slash box. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. I heard you say in another interview that you're working out how to be politically committed without having all the answers. Right, yeah. I, I love that. Someone might hear that and think it's contradictory, you know, being totally committed to something without believing you have all the answers. But I don't think it is at all. How do you make sense of, of that aspiration? It's the big political challenge of our times. I think the paradox whereby actually what a kind of liberal democracy utopia looks like is everyone being able to live in the way that they feel and choose is best and exercise their personal decision making and judgment on that. And yet at the same time, the irony of that or the paradox in that is if that's your utopia, you then can't have utopia because um, you can't ever have a single model and you can't ever have a single set of rules or a single set of rights or laws. I mean, it's actually, you know, if you start unpacking, it's incredibly sort of radical idea. You've got to literally be in this sort of space. I mean, I come from a theatre background, did a lot of drama and dance when I was younger. And there's this sort of mode that you go in when you've sort of done an activity or performed or something like that. It's called neutral. And it's almost like that's what you've got to kind of refine yourself to be in this constant position of openness towards the world, but relative neutrality, ready to get rid of or challenge or question or re-examine any sort of belief that 10 minutes ago you might have, you know, put your absolute heart and soul on the line for. Now, actually, intellectually, that's that's fun. That's quite creative. And in some ways, that's what a lot of kind of academics do. It's, it's, it's actually never a problem to them. Well, I say that. <laughs> I say that. In our current performative culture, it is a problem to decide that you were completely wrong and and to start all yep. over again. No, you can't do that now. But in the idealized academy of my dreams, that was what you did, right? Any idea is subject to question. It's it's provisional. Um, and that's exciting. To live like that is difficult. It is, but there's a lot of wisdom in that. You know, I think of an ideologue as someone who starts with an absolute belief in the truth of their story and then defends that belief, that story in the world. Whereas an anarchist doesn't seem as committed to a particular story. It's just a kind of faith in people (laughs) and and, and a belief in the potential of 
human cooperation. I don't know. Maybe that's too simple, but it seems right. No, I think that's a great way to put it. I mean, I could sit here and garble off a lot of very sort of technical kind of cultural theory jargon, but actually most anarchists would help me in the streets for that because it is, it is exactly what you're saying. Basically, my form of anarchism that I'm committed to means that if I'm committed to this idea that permanent authority is not a necessary condition of human living, that there are other ways that you can live. Not all of them are going to work and they're not going to work if you instate them as an alter- as a permanent alternative because you've missed the point. But if you go into every situation thinking, well, how could I get the most freedom out of this? If I define freedom as understanding that the minute I sort of reduce anybody else's freedom in this equation, I'm going to actually have a knock-on effect on my own in the long run because any kind of unequal, disrupted and unequal social setting means that even if you're enjoying great freedoms or you feel you are at that moment in time, you've got to keep one eye over your shoulder because if people don't have what you've got, they'll come for you. So that's another way of introducing a sort of extra element into this, which says, yes, anarchy has a lot to say about individual freedom. But it's also got to say quite a lot about social equality. In America, at least, it sometimes feels like libertarianism is the closest thing we have Mm -hmm. to anarchism. And that's Mm -hmm. unfortunate because these are very different things, right? I mean, I know there are some commonalities, but, but what are the most important differences? Because I suspect a lot of people can't help but conflate these two things because of the emphasis on, say, you know, individual freedom. Mm, Absolutely. And in practice, to be honest, there's probably not much difference. I mean, but what anarchism does is just gives you a very helpful reminder of that structural condition, permanent authority, because actually libertarianism, that can just be a sort of usually, and again, it's got a broad spectrum. People use it many, many different ways, a bit of a moving feast. But if you're going to anchor it to anything, it's that sort of large wholesome embrace of liberty and liberty, putting liberty first in all given contexts. And yeah, sure, anarchism is about that. But the very term anarchism reminds you of the structural condition for that, which is no permanent authority. And it is interesting, and this is particularly the case possibly with the more right-wing versions of libertarianism. Anarchism, by reminding us Individual freedom is not something that can ever be disassociated or unattached from a wider social context or setting. Mm. So you really want freedom, individual freedom. Actually, there's quite a lot of social legwork to do first. What's interesting about anarchists, as, as far as I understand them, is, I mean, they clearly prioritize freedom, but it doesn't seem to me to be the freedom of the libertarian. My sense is that Anarchists see individual freedom ultimately as a bridge to community, whereas for the libertarian, the individual is the end. Would you agree with that? Sure. I mean, just to sort of unpack this a little bit, I don't think every sort of anarchist has got this kind of ideal of community in that sort of commune intentional community type way. Quite a lot of the time, yes, it has been expressed like that. And certainly anarchism, even for the most hardcore individualist, sort of presupposes an awful lot of social thinking. Because I think the best way to kind of approach this is to say, well, many accounts of libertarianism, particularly as we hear them at the moment, sort of take as their individual, a sort of very Lockean, John Locke, that sort of isolated individual who's very sort of self-contained in the world, the the tabula rasa who wanders through the world just picking up experiences and making decisions as a result of that. Whereas I think most anarchists and I think left libertarians too would want to acknowledge a more social account of the individual. So what makes you an individual is actually all the kind of social relationships and interactions you have with people. Now, once upon a time, community was the sort of end goal of this, as it were. So um, actually the anarchist vision in a sort of simpler sort of model of society was full integration within to a given community and full capacity to participate fully in that community. It's a bit more difficult for us to say that in this very advanced stage of modernity. Some people attempted to say that modernity is an isolating thing and because actually the only reason for community was to pool resources in order to combat a sort of planet or an environment that was very aggressive and hostile towards us and now we have 
colonized that environment and subdued it to our ends. We don't need to do that anymore. Actually, there's another account of modernity that says it's hypersocial. We have way more social relationships now. Uh, our dependencies are so distributed um, across so many different networks of people and places. And also, we are discovering very loud and clear right now that we are in a very, very strong relationship with the natural environment, which we're obviously doing a heck of a lot of sabotage at the moment. So if you're going to talk about the individual as an anarchist, you kind of can't do it without bringing everyone else along with them. What would you say is the most promising anarchist idea that seems relevant to this political moment? I think actually right now there are two twin ideas, as it were. Decentralization and redistribution. Decentralization, again, this is this idea of permanent authority being the real bugbear, you know, permanent states, permanent governance, even things like extended beyond the actual sort of traditional modes of government to things like, and this is a bit of a provocative one, but even things like codes of law and rights and things like that. They have their purpose and their reason, or they did have, but increasingly now we are looking at times where we simply have to get better at taking more responsibility. Anything like government or systems of law, what have you, what are they? They're actually heuristics. They're, they're sort of shortcuts for an awful lot of moral and political discussion and reasoning that actually people forget that they've kind of compressed those into a sort of series of kind of rules of thumb. And we are increasingly not teaching ourselves or troubling ourselves to have those complex conversations between ourselves, therefore becoming the sort of the tail is wagging the dog now. We're becoming very subject to all these systems and structures which came to be at times which were so unbelievably different to how we are living now. And they're not fit for purpose anymore. And so it's no surprise that they're cracking up around us. Are there useful examples, even just one or two today or historically of sustainable anarchist communities, communities that model the kind of politics you want to see in the world today. So again, I'm going to be awkward and say, yes, there are examples, um, plenty of examples of intentional communities. And a lot of people, whenever I sort of talk about anarchism or write about anarchism, they kind of expect to hear about these sort of horizontal um, communities where everyone sort of shared the organic gardening and stuff like that. And these are, these are fantastic. However, to me, they're anarchist communities as a kind of proper noun because that's what they wish to call themselves, if that is indeed what they call themselves. They're not anarchist, small a adjective. And that's because you kind of can't have it in isolation, in pockets like that. Because ultimately what happens, if you're trying to live in, in an anarchist community, in a culture that's not, in a culture that's committed to aggressive, hierarchical capitalism, for example, you are going to actually have to uh, go against your own sort of principles of practice simply in order to survive. Either you're going to have to compromise dramatically or you're going to have to be pretty coercive in order to keep everyone online and resist some of the pressures that are upon you. Either that or you are going to have to lay out a lot of money <laughs> to, to sort of essentially acquire yourself a kind of mini republic type existence. And even then, you know, part of anarchism is dealing with things that are not always going to go your way. Actually, that's most of the joy of anarchism. That's the most useful idea anarchism has for us, in my opinion. The fact that actually it is a way of thinking through and with things that aren't necessarily what or who you'd have chosen. And that's actually, I mean, look at the world we're in today right now. It would be so useful if we were slightly less preoccupied with preserving particular ways of life and slightly more open. Like anarchy to me is almost like the political equivalent of being a brilliant improviser in drama. Mm. Where or when has anarchism been tried and failed? And, and what, and <laughs> every might, day, everywhere. What, <laughs> what might we learn from those spectacular failures about what works and what doesn't? And, and maybe about what's possible and what isn't? Well, Anarchism sort of constantly fails, and if it doesn't, it would fail, which might sound completely contradictory. But because it is supposed to be such a dynamic way of thinking, that if you ever got something like an anarchist community up and running, and it didn't fail, then what you've managed to achieve is sort of 
collective groupthink, essentially. That might be great, but that's not anarchism. Anarchism's about, I think the in vogue phrase at the moment is failing forward so that you try things, but when they don't work, and yeah, you have to deal with that and it's hurtful and it's painful, but then there's the destruction and creation bit again. Things fall apart and they reassemble differently. So I speak a lot to um, Extinction Rebellion activists, and I also work on things like the first British New Left. And I am constantly get the, oh, but, you know, it was so great, there was so much energy, and you could say the same instantly for Occupy as well. It was so great, it started off so ambitious, there was so much hope, there was so much optimism, it really looked like we were going to change something, and then it failed. Did it? Did it. Did any of these things fail, or did they arise in a moment, meet that moment, speak to that moment and then move on because that's life. Part of anarchism is actually allowing, forgiving yourself the need to have to constantly think of political success as permanency. I think a lot of these sorts of conversations, for me at least, and this is maybe just a product of, of my education and kind of how I think about the world, but you know, you mentioned human nature a little earlier and, and every political philosophy, either implicitly or explicitly is built on a theory of human nature. And I, I wonder what the anarchist view of human nature is, or, or, or maybe that's an unfair question. What is your view as an anarchist of human nature? Because I'm sure there are many different <laughs> views of human nature within the anarchist community. Sure. Well, those pesky anarchists, as you're saying, have pretty much adopted every sort of, of the familiar views available to us and managed to turn anarchism um, to their advantage in every single possible definition. So you do have those like Kropotkin who are very optimistic about human nature. They think actually we're basically social beings and we're being sort of inhibited or prevented from doing that by these sort of coercive, life-denying, um, authoritarian structures, the political principles that we have to live within. So actually if we get rid of those, it'll be an easy win. Actually, people will find it remarkably easy to be cooperative. It's, it's in us to do it. Yeah. Okay, not sure. <laughs> but then you have people like Alex Comfort, for example, who was sort of 20th century British, writing particularly around the 1940s, 1950s. Now, he took a much more, well, he called it realist view, but I call it possibly slightly on the pessimistic, this idea that actually, no, humans aren't going to be like that. I suppose it's not far off what I was saying earlier about conflict. Sort of following someone like Thomas Hobbes, humans are going to just conflict with each other constantly. So actually, the, the game in town is how do you manage that conflict? If it's inevitable, if you can't be too optimistic about everyone's social capacity, how can you kind of distribute your society, distribute your decision-making power, distribute your economic power so nobody ever gets enough to have like a critical mass that can kind of overtake everybody else? My view is total cop-out here, Sean. Absolute wimpy answer. Human nature is incredibly malleable. I think it can be many, many, many things. Um, and again, I take a quite a, a kind of drama metaphor to this. You are like the ultimate actor in neutral waiting for the next role. Mm, all right. I'm not going to let you get off that easy. <laughs> let me just push a little bit more mm -hmm. and I'm going to ask this more pointedly. And, and, and it might sound like a strange question, but I don't think it is. Mm. Can you be an anarchist and still believe that there are fundamentally evil human beings? Well, I personally don't, which is sometimes really difficult to maintain. I don't believe in evil. What I would say is people certainly have the capacity for it, unbelievable capacity for it, shocking capacity for it. And again, I'm not, I'm not a full environmentalist in the sense that, oh, if only they'd had a nice progressive education and lots of drama classes when they were young, everything would have been fine. Uh, it might have been. It might have been. In many cases, it probably could have been. But actually, we don't quite know what that tipping point is. But I would be happier calling it a capacity rather than anything more profound. This may be a point of disagreement then, because I I do think that human beings are pretty plastic and, and, and often we are as good or bad as the world allows us to be. Mm -hmm. I also believe that that evil, for lack of a better word, is a real thing. And I say that as a secular person, not a religious person. And even if we constructed the most practical utopia ever, I think we would still need police and armies. Mm -hmm. Now, an anarchist might say that people can be wicked, but it's power that makes them that way. Yeah, and capacity. 
I think there's some truth there, but I think it's also like importantly incomplete. You know, I think some people are just wicked whether they have power or not. And would you would you disagree with that? Well, it's a big gamble to take, isn't it? I mean, yeah, sort of yeah. um, because obviously whoever happens to be the poor victim um, of someone's sort of inclinations. And like I said, no matter how much you try and anticipate or do what you theoretically assume is the right thing to do, that person who discovers otherwise, the victim, no apology is going to cover that, really, especially, you know, in, in the case of some atrocities. And I have to ask myself on balance, is the damage that having things like a permanent police force or a kind of judiciary system skewed in a particular historical social context does the damage outweigh that one time that they can actually contain a problem yeah these aren't easy questions and they're not easy answers you know but i i would also say that i i agree with you that the vast majority of people are not to borrow a phrase of yours cruel and disordered when they're not governed I guess I just think that some people are, and it, and the problem is that it doesn't take many cruel and disordered people to make life impossible for everyone else. And that to me is the, is the crucial political problem, how to deal with that. And I'm not sure anarchy can or does, but it could be wrong. It could be worth flipping this upside down. That might be one way to do it. Hmm, okay. So we're talking about that individual who um, we're saying is beyond all, all kind of reasonable measure. But what we could talk about is all those other people. And I actually think they are, they are really interesting, those other people, as it were. Who are they? Don't, don't quite know. But I mean, if we take sort of the situation we have now, where we have minorities on either end, right? We have a relative minority of people who are unbelievably, really almost, you, you would want to say saintly if you were religious. And then you have the tiny minority of people who, let's say, evil for want of any other word. And then you have this sort of spectrum of people kind of between the two. And these are always the really interesting people. They're the people who, they're very unpredictable. And that's kind of wonderful in a way, in terms of they will go with a particular issue on a particular day, but they'll be very responsive to a situational logic rather than some sort of deep ideological commitment to anything. And I think there's enormous potential there, which is largely ignored or squandered. People kind of really dismiss everyday sorts of intelligence and reasoning and logic. And because it's dismissed, it's suppressed. And because we're constantly trying to come up to these official measures of what we should be and who we should be, we actually miss that half the time we're perfectly functional anarchists already. It's also funny, whatever worldview someone subscribes to, they have a nasty habit of starting history at the moment mo most convenient mm -hmm. to that story. You know, so if you're a capitalism enthusiast. You'll look at the kind of person capitalism has produced and say that that is what human nature is and will always mm -hmm. be. But humans have lived in very different ways across time and cultures. And, and, and much more of human history looks like anarchism than it does capitalism. We'll put it this way. I mean, we talk about all these great civilizations. They fill our history books, right? You know, the great civilizations, the Incas, the Aztecs, the Egyptians, all that sort of thing. The indigenous Australian people had a continuous human existence with culture, the works, you know, all that sort of thing for 60,000 years and without any archaeological evidence whatsoever of any sort of major conflict or struggle beyond what we might reasonably assume were localized tussles. Hmm. That to me is an enormous success. That is the height of civilization. This obviously sort of low energy, sustainable, peaceable existence that allowed those people to trundle on, you know, for, for way longer than any of these other so-called great civilizations that were essentially founded on authority, hierarchy, violence, and bloodshed. More of my conversation with Sophie Scott Brown after one last quick break. That guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. 
If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Once upon a time in America, there was no such thing as all-you-can-eat shrimp. And then the world changed. Today, shrimp is the most popular, the most consumed seafood in America. The endless shrimp fiesta is an American institution. But that shrimp fiesta comes at a steep price. Here at Gastropod, we found out that hidden behind the delicious shrimp on your plate is environmental disaster and modern-day slavery. So can you have your shrimp and a clear conscience, too? Actually, yes, and we've got the secret to help you unlock true, lifelong shrimp happiness. Listen to the latest episode of Gastropod wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think there are any downsides to a society that aims to maximize individual freedom? Actually, I think if you're prepared to do a little jiggery pokery, as it were, with the um with the definitions, like all good philosophers, I'm naturally gonna rig the terms in my favor in order to logically <laughs> proceed according to how I how I like. Naturally. So if you're gonna say, well, the individual's not this isolated, discrete entity, right? They're always a social being. Even the very simple fact we use language to think about ourselves, and language is by definition a social tool. So if you want no other definition than that, you know, there's a social relationship right there, just in the way we think about ourselves, describe ourselves, become aware of ourselves. So if we're going to say the individual is always social, then actually this idea that freedom is just doing what you want or doing what you like, to be honest, it's too fickle. It's too slippery. That's going to change as you move in and out of different groups, different contexts, different situations. So we need a slightly more robust definition of freedom to be going on with. So what we could say instead is, right, well, what if freedom looked more like social responsibility? So your your life in society is not just something that's done to you, not just something you have to get on board with. It's something that you're part of. And even if you don't get what you think is right all the time, it's never just a passive relationship. You're an active actor. So if you construe individual freedom in this much more kind of socially robust sense, then yeah, it is a fantastic political good to aim for because it takes an awful lot with it. Lots of political thinkers have worried about freedom and the paradoxes of freedom. It, you can find it in someone like Dostoevsky. Mm -hmm. you, can you can find a version of it in someone like Plato. And the basic argument is that the pursuit of maximal freedom ends in its opposite, ends in tyranny, that, that people think they want to be free. And, and once they are, they experience the chaos and responsibility and uncertainty that comes with that. And they end up revolting against it. And you get some form of tyranny, of you know, a strong man type that promises order and certainty. I mean, how do you think about that as an anarchist? I mean, I think that's that's sort of broadly right and always will be right in so long as we live in cultures where we don't actually cultivate how to live with uncertainty and how to actually not be fearful of that. Because in some ways, if you just rephrase that slightly, it suddenly becomes a lot less daunting, like uncertainty. I think most people, if you said to them, right, well, things change, um, something that was completely the case or very true, you know, at one point in time sort of ceases to have the same significance or priority or same meaning at another. Things come to light which weren't known before. Different voices come into play which weren't heard before. So if you say to people, well, you know, nothing's fixed, everything changes. I think actually a lot of people find that really quite comforting. It's not comforting when you live in a state of precarity or, you know, when you are told that actually, despite the fact that is quite patently obvious how life is, I mean, even if you look out the window, you see things changing, you know, the natural world keeps changing. So on one level, we can see all that. And that's the sort of condition in the way that we're living our life. We've got this sort of account or this narrative of life, which constantly reinforces the virtues of certainty, of being sure, of being right. You know, even in sort of educational contexts, 
when we ask students to develop arguments, it's always in that pugilistic sense. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole freedom of speech debate is construed like this. Freedom of speech ought to be the freedom to inquire anything of one another in order to understand the possibilities of living with one another better. What do we actually have? Oh, my freedom of speech is the right to say whatever the heck I like that represents my way of life and to have it sort of face off against yours like some sort of game of cosmic conquers until I knock yours out of the park and I win. And whilst we live like that, no, we're never going to get on board with the pleasures of uncertainty and how much scope that gives us, how forgivable that is, how forgivable and forgiving that is for the way we want to live together. I don't do prophecy on this show, and so, so I, I don't I don't know where we're going, but it is clear enough that the global liberal capitalist order is buckling a little bit right now. That's true in Europe. It's true certainly in America and elsewhere that that the failures of, of liberalism have produced a lot of discontent. Uh, and, and I wonder if you see this moment as an especially fertile one for anarchist ideas. Not, not that we're going to transform into some kind of anarchist regime, but that some, some anarchist principles might find some traction in, in this moment. Well, I absolutely do. And I think I'm lucky. I'm of a of a generation that, you know, previous anarchists could only have dreamed about. I'm suddenly no longer the idealist. I'm the realist, <laughs> which is it's a fascinating position to be in because it's no longer actually a romantic ideal. The reality is that for some of the challenges and problems that we're going to be facing in the world that we're moving into, and you don't have to be prophetic to see that climate change is going to change a heck of a lot more than we can possibly realize right now. Diversity, mobile societies, migration levels, um, as people sort of have to kind of leave their homes because of the effect of the, the climate emergency or because we simply live in very highly hypermobile times when that is the norm. These are the sorts of things that we are going towards. And that's before you even get on to things like AI or the impressive but terrifying advances in technology that we're seeing. What you're getting is... Conditions that are simultaneously ubiquitous, they apply to all of us, but they're also incredibly localized. The climate emergency affects everybody, but it's going to affect everyone in really different ways. And it's not a final problem. It's not something you can have your solutions to. So much of the climate debate now is really frustratingly all geared around finding the right big tech solution. And the reality is you're going to need absolutely everything your imagination can come up with, whether that's retreats from growth at the same time as advances in green tech. You're going to need all the tools in the toolbox, as it were, for this. And you're going to need as many different brains on the job as possible. And you're going to need those brains to know how to communicate with one another. And insofar as, you know, those are the conditions we're going into, anarchist ideas are about the only things which really facilitate that in a meaningful way. As for the crack up of the older systems, it's simply because they haven't evolved. Democracy's never got off a fairly sluggish voting system. You know, the big problem with capitalism is it allows for too much extremity at either end. If you could limit the extremes and have a smaller, more controlled scale of variation, you might control some of the worst until we sort of actually are willing to be quite frank about how the internal failings of the systems that we claim we purport to love and cherish and prioritize, unless we're frank about where they're going wrong, then we will live in their ruins. As much as I find attractive in it, I wonder if anarchism or anything like it could ever work at scale. <laughs> I, I fear that one of the lessons of the 20th and 21st centuries might be that humans are not especially equipped to live in large symbolic communities without material connections and shared ways of living. So maybe anarchism could work, but only in smaller, more localized ways. I think that's broadly right. And this idea that you have to have anarchist nations or, you know, even anarchist sort of um, unions, if you like, well, yes, you could, but maybe let them take care of themselves. If they happen, they happen. But what maybe might be more interesting is this notion of being intensely local, but while simultaneously sort of global. And I sort of am trying not to use that old, but very useful cliche, um, think global, act local, but, but it's got traction here. But let's say, for example, that we were going to accept that there was sort of both idealistic, ethical, practical reasons why it would be great to see a much more kind of workers' control of industrial democracy, you know, in our workplaces. You know, why why is it that we have to sort of retain these kind of fairly doddery 
very hierarchical structures of decision-making, which as we know, even now are still not particularly diverse. What would it look like if these people that were under so much pressure to educate, and we're educating for longer and longer and longer, and we're being told we'll need to, it's not even 21 anymore, it's, it's lifelong. You'll need to do lifelong learning to keep abreast of everything in order to just keep employed. Well, if you're going to keep this sort of highly educated population, are you honestly going to be surprised when they start getting very resentful, essentially being treated like rude mechanicals in their workplaces? You could do a much more healthy support for some an approach like that, so more workers' control, industrial management, industrial democracy, than necessarily worrying about anarchist nations. Well, we're getting close to the end here, so I'll just say this. The great David Graeber wrote about the power of, of what he called prefigurative politics and how someone's sense of what's possible is transformed when they organize and act in solidarity with other people. And I don't know what's possible, but I am fairly positive that our shared political imagination has been stunted by the system we've been born into and the disconnected culture it has produced. And, and, and most of us are too removed from periods of genuine political transformation to remember how easily things can in fact change. So, you know, I'm not saying that the anarchist revolution is here. I, I don't even consider myself an anarchist in any meaningful sense, but I do think we're at a moment where it's a good thing to think big and differently about how to organize our societies, all of which is to say, I'm very much here for these kinds of conversations. That to me is 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 incredibly positive. I actually find that, that there's more scope to have conversations with someone who is still wants to retain that skepticism and not sort of necessarily buy in or slap the label, you know, sort of proudly on their t-shirt or whatever. That that's absolutely fine. For me, again, what's important right now is that there's a franker sort of confrontation with the kind of problems that we're facing and the systems and the structures that we're living in. And secondly, an openness to the possibility that it need not be that way. And actually, we have an awful lot that we can be doing, even if it feels like this is on a small and trivial level. Every act reclaims something for ourselves. I like that. That's a good note to end on. Sophie, this has been a ton of fun. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you and, and exploring some of these ideas, you are a great uh, partner. So thanks so much for taking the time and, and walking me through it. Thank you, it was a great pleasure. Our producer is John Ahrens. Brandon McFarlane engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music Special thanks to Kaylin Boguki. As always, let us know what you think of the episode. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. And please share it with your friends on all the socials. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays. Listen and subscribe. The Gray Area is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep Vox free by going to vox.com slash give.